0: Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. After speaking with the Samaritan woman, Jesus informs his disciples that they are reaping the harvest sown by those before them. Here's Pastor Garrett. You know we left the the woman at the well, Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman, and we talked about Again, this is one of those stories that is very often, or, or very often overlooked by the skeptic that wants to talk about the New Testament and whether it's valid or whether it has integrity. Because this is not a story you would include if you were making up a story or trying to create this religious figure that, that is Jesus and, and to present some kind of structure that, that would be built around him. He wouldn't have gone to a Samaritan woman. You wouldn't have had this significantly long passage and interaction between Jesus and another uh, that, that would include not only women, but certainly not a Samaritan woman. We talked about why that was, was important within their culture and the fact that they clashed and they didn't, didn't see eye to eye. And uh, Samaritans, they by the way, Samaritan is not uh, because they're from Samaria, Samaritan means keepers. They, they saw themselves as keepers of the law. And that's why we mentioned that they, were, uh, they only uh, adhered to the first five books of the Old Testament. That was their structure. And so out of that then, they felt that they were more adherent than even their Jewish counterparts. Uh, and, and we talked about from the Jewish perspective that they looked at Samaritans as as being, at best, uh, a half-breed part of the Jewish history. At worst, they even saw them as as, um, those that betrayed or or were were those that had, had flipped and gone in an entirely different direction. So this is not something you would make up. If you wanted to make Jesus out to be this superstar, this is not the story you would tell. And that's the reason it's overlooked because it is in the scriptures. It does show us that Jesus, in having this heart, as he is hungry, he's thirsty, they've been traveling, they're heading back to, to Galilee, and, and they stop here, and, and the disciples, they go into town to get some food, Jesus is, is hanging out here near this well, and the woman shows up, carrying her jar, carrying her, her, her probably her, some, some pail or something to, to retrieve the water, And Jesus asks her for a drink. She knows that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. She knows that there's this this cultural break. And so she says, why are you talking to me and asking me for water? And what does Jesus say to her? If you knew the gift of God, you would be asking me for water. Like Nicodemus in the chapter before, she only sees this from the physical part. She doesn't understand the spiritual reality that Jesus is putting on display. Remember, Nicodemus, when told he had to be born again, well, how can I, an old man, enter into my mother's womb a second time? That's silly. But Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical birth. What's physical is physical. I'm talking about the reality of spiritual birth that God gives and he ultimately ties it up in the person of Jesus himself. So he says, because there's physical realities, God is dealing with spiritual realities and they are real. Just, just because they aren't in your uh, everyday experience as a, in the physical realm doesn't mean they're any less real. Don't, don't pull away from them. He says, in fact, Nicodemus, you should embrace them because God loved you so much he sent his son into the world. So that believing in him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. Those truths are are reflective of a a physical uh, construct that that is developed in the spiritual reality. Same thing here. She says, you don't even have anything to draw water with. How can you give me this living water? And Jesus goes on to explain to her what that means. Life, the promise of God. We come to this verse, we left then with that discussion where Jesus was, she immediately wants to know who worships the right way and Jesus says, listen, the Father's heart is this, he just wants your heart. He doesn't care whether you're in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, he wants the one who worships in spirit and truth. There's a big, big statement there about you know, this concept of religion Religion certainly is presented as something important, but only as an expression of the realities that God has given in Christ, so that it's first rooted in this relationship, grounded in this relationship. That's true of what we see around us. Nobody walks into my home and just follows the rules and says, there, I belong to your family. No, you belong to family first, then the rules apply, or they're supposed to apply. We tried to make them apply. That's why you then have discipline as well. But that's a whole nother story, a whole nother sermon. So in verse 24 and and preceding that, Jesus says, now is the time through me that God has revealed his heart, he's wanting worshipers. So in verse 25, the woman responds again by saying, well, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Keep in mind, they didn't have any New Testament. This was a promise they knew from just the Old Testament. And precisely, in her case, would have been the first five books. They expected a Messiah. They knew he was coming. He would provide answers. Jesus says something very important, and this again is, is very significant, that he makes himself known to the Samaritan woman, because she wouldn't have had all the capacity to understand the weight of this just because she wasn't in in kind of that inner circle, if you will. But he says, I, the one speaking to you, very emphatic, am he. Literally, I am. Now, you know, we've talked before about the fact that Jesus, you know, the personal pronoun there is not in the original. I, the one speaking to you, I am. It's the first place that he will make this declaration nine times throughout this gospel where he will use this reference that to every first century listener, they would have known that's the language that God used to reveal himself to Abraham or to Moses when he said, I am who I am. This is what Jesus would have been saying. And so you would have heard some variation of Yahweh or Yah, Yahoo, or whatever would have been the expression in Aramaic that would have, uh, and, and again, we don't know precisely for various reasons, but that, that would have been his expression to her. Very significant. And he goes right to the, to the fullness of it to say, what God is offering is offered right here. And so he goes on to say, or we go on then to read that, the, and it shifts here, where it goes to the disciples a little bit. We're going to have a a, a kind of a parenthetical section that will deal with them. And that as they return, they're surprised to find him talking to this woman. Because they know, again, that this would have been a a significant issue, both that she was a woman and a Samaritan woman. And so they ask, or, or they don't ask, but they're wondering, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Now, it's interesting that John conveys these questions because he knows that that was in their minds, like, okay, this is is our rabbi. This is someone who is significantly more important, and here he is associating with and talking to. That wasn't typical, folks. Jesus took all of the typical things and, and reversed them and made them very typical. Whether it's the woman here, the woman who touches the hem of his garment, the the, the woman who's broken and comes and cries at his feet or or brings the, the expensive ointment to anoint him before his death, all of those things, that, that was outside the realm of, of what was natural and right and typical within the first century. Or in Luke 8, we read about women who were actually part of his following, his disciples, and they are providing resources for his his ministry to continue. Those were big things that women were included. The disciples didn't understand that at this point. The woman leaving her water jar, that's kind of ironic that that what she came to do in drawing water, she encounters the one who promises living water. She leaves her water jar and she goes back to the town and she says to the people Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come on, catch up. There you go. Could this be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God? Come on. I know technology. I told you this week I'm calling Comcast that we might have a new Wi-Fi code by next week. So he says, they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, Master, eat something. They knew that he had to be hungry. And here again, we have a significant statement. Jesus tying the physical realities to spiritual realities and saying they both are real. They both exist. Don't dismiss what is, what is given by God to be real within the spiritual realm and, and dismiss it as something that is important. So they say, eat something. And Jesus responds to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now again, the disciples, in just the way that the woman did, and just the way that Nicodemus did, are like, well, did he have food that someone else brought him? Could someone have brought him this food, and that's going to be in the next verse when it gets there for you? And so when they ask this question, they too are struggling with this connection that Jesus represents of everything that God is promising. And don't miss this. It's just a, just a very plain straight in our face, two by four across the forehead type of truth. He says, do not miss what God is giving. And it's going to happen every single chapter. I'm going to repeat this over and over again. In chapter five, you're going to see this with, again, religious leaders who, who are intent on saying that they study the scriptures. And he says, you study the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. They point to me And you won't accept what is revealed about that life-giving person. And he'll be even a little more blunt and harsh with them in that in chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000 and they want something more. And he'll say, no, you need to go after the food on whom God has set his seal of approval, the bread of life. Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness, they died. This is the bread that the father promises, that God promises that will give eternal life. And so at every single point, he doesn't doesn't draw them to denominational structures, religious structures, he draws them to himself and says, if you don't have a relationship with God the Father through me, you don't have a relationship. Chapter 5, that's going to become very vivid, very stark contrast in the things that they're trying to say and do without him. So the disciples say, well, did someone bring him food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This reflection back to God's reality is very important for us. Because as we also saw in chapter three, we try to tell God what reality will be. And we don't want to accept, we don't want to accept what, what God says is real. And so we, we compartmentalize and we'll say, well, I, I'll, I'll believe this about God. I believe, and we'll tell God what we'll believe about him and, and then try to make him fit into that box, and, and God doesn't do that. God has presented himself especially and precisely in the person of Jesus, and remember, they, they all know that, that that's what God has put on, on display, that's what he has promised, and so when Jesus shows up, he says, this is God's promise. I am the promise that God made. And so if you try to say, I believe in God, but, but dismiss Jesus, then you don't believe in God. And again, Jesus is going to precisely say that in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8. He will say that to them. The reason you don't believe in me is because you don't believe in God. You can't believe in God unless you believe in the one he has sent. And so this is the kind of the opening, the, the, the introduction to all of that, is that I'm here to do the will of God who sent me, and to finish his work. Finish his work. Implication is that God has started this work, that God has indeed made it known, and that God, Jesus there then is therefore going to be the fulfillment of it. And then he points them in a different direction here. He says, it's still four months until harvest. This has kind of led a lot of people to try to guess what time of year this was, but Jesus is just making a point that in God's in God's framework, the the planting, the sowing, and the reaping are happening. They overlap one another. You don't wait. You don't It's not something that is down the road. It's it's happening now. And he's bringing those two things together at this very point for them. He says, you have the saying that in four months, everything will be ready for harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. I tell you. Dean, I'm just going to give it to you. Just try to keep up. I know, I don't often tell you. So in in 35, he says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The harvest is here. So bringing these things together, he's saying what we sow, the truth that we give about what God is planning, and that's what Jesus is connecting, that because Jesus is here, the sowing and the reaping are happening together. And he's going to tell them, go on to verse 36, he's going to tell them that even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. That as one is presenting that truth, the other is benefiting from it and they they are experiencing those things together. In verse 37, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. Go, on to, go ahead and go on to the next one. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, and others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus, in one way here, is not, you know, this is a, certainly a message about us proclaiming the good news. We call it evangelism. That means proclamation. Our proclamation of the good news is that life is in Jesus. But Jesus is the, the work of the gospel. We are to be an expression of that work. Jesus has done it all. He is finishing the work of the Father. He represents the very definition of the work, the love, the grace, the mercy of the Father. We sang about it earlier. It's it's, it's all the way through the New Testament. It is the expression of God's promises in a person. And so Jesus is the one. The hard work is done. He's done it all, and we as we not only benefit from that work, we're to be an expression of that work. There are certainly others who, um, there's kind of this this understanding that as we continue to do that, we're not always going to see the the results of the things that we do in proclaiming the good news, talking to others about Jesus. There might be another time that they say, yes, I, I believe, I do believe that Jesus is, the sent one from God, the one who has saved me and done all the work and loves me that much. Because that's all Jesus is inviting. Nicodemus and the woman at the well and and the folks in chapter 5, the thousands in chapter 6, even his own family in chapter 7. That's all he's inviting them to do, to accept and receive what God has given as life and salvation. So he's telling them, open your eyes The fields are ripe unto harvest because that's who he is. In verse 39, as he continues then, we see it shift back to then the folks from the town and the Samaritans are coming out. And it says that they believed in him because the woman said, he told me everything I did. So apparently, they knew what she did as well. And they understood that this was significant, that this... Jewish man somehow knew about this Samaritan woman, and so as they come out, it says when they came to him in the next verse that they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. Big deal. This is a big deal. We know Jesus was making this trip. He went through Samaria And it says by necessity, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, it was by necessity. So you assume that he took this route, normally they diverted. Samaritans didn't go through Judea, and and Jewish people didn't go through the land of Samaria. That's how much they did not get along. So the fact that they were going through Samaria leads one to believe that they were in a hurry, but they invite Jesus to stay, and he stays for two days interesting that the diversion takes about two days. So Jesus is spending his two days with the Samaritan folk, telling them about God's love for them. And we don't even know the details. Wouldn't this be a good place to know all of the conversation, know all of the things, all of the people? But what is interesting in the next verse is that uh, because of his words, many more became believers. Go to verse 42, and they go back to the woman who was the first to proclaim that, hey, isn't this the Messiah? And now they say to her, we don't believe anymore just because of what he said to you. We now believe because of what he said to us. Now, I don't know about you, and this gonna be, we're going to end with that today. We're just, there's a lot to take in, and there was more that I planned on. We haven't even finished the chapter yet think about what they were saying. Jesus went to them and he said, this is God's plan for you. And the plan that he had for the woman, the fulfillment of that plan is the same for each one of us. But what he invites and gives to each one of us is for you and for me. In the sense that we each have to accept it and this isn't something that that you can do, someone else can do for you, and, and you can't say, well, have I, have I been good enough? That's what they'll ask in chapter 6. How do we be good enough to do what God requires? There's only one thing God requires that you believe in the one he sent. So very important, because I'm telling you that if Jesus would come and spend two days with us, you would hear exactly what they heard. I am sent by God the Father to finish his work. I am the Savior of the world. And if you believe in me, you will have life. If you don't believe in me, you do not have life. You can claim whatever you want about God, but God's claim on you is only experienced through his son, Jesus. See, that, that has to at some point just kind of, Now there's the two by four in the head, but there's got to be the one that stretches to our hearts and says, what am I waiting for? Why am I putting this off? If Jesus were here, would I even invite him to tell me about himself and stay and spend time with me, or would I just say, nope, I've made up my mind? On one hand, it's really a, a testament to their willingness to, you have to understand the shift that would take place here. This was not typical normal, but Jesus is not typical normal, but he is real. And just as he presents and says, this is God's heart for you, he says, I am here to tell you it's this real. So he's, he's, he's the gap between the spiritual reality, and the physical reality. He's the one that, that brings those two things together, always, ever, in every situation, and yet today. And So we, you got to be confronted with that. Don't, I, I always tell you, don't take my word for it. Examine the claims of Jesus. And, and, and from that point then say, what am I going to do with him? And maybe you're comfortable putting him with the elf on the shelf. I don't know. But don't be comfortable with that because he's not there. You can say you've put him there, but he doesn't stay there. He is always the presentation of all that God is for you through the Son. And so as a result, many believe and 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 they're... they're brought to this place of acknowledging him to be the savior of the world, that that's why he's the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? That's it. The story's over. We don't know any more details. Don't tell me this was made up 200 years later. This is ridiculous. If made up 200 years later, this is absolute nonsense. It doesn't do what they claim it would do. It's straightforward a presentation of God's plan through the through the the eyes of the disciples at times, the Samaritan woman, but always through the person of Jesus. And it doesn't change. It doesn't change. I love that about the way Jesus presents himself to the point of the cross when slapped and beaten and the beard pulled out of his face and spit upon that crown of thorns driven into his head with a club, all of those things, and, and yet he just, he does it for us. At any moment, he could stop it. He wasn't doing bad things. He was being the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and taking upon himself our sin, all that we deserved just because he loves us. Takes my breath away. I hope it does yours. But I hope with the next breath you say, I know you are the Savior of the world and that means me. If you've already said that, don't ever stop saying it. Say it now. I know you're the Savior of the world. You're my Savior. But if you've never said it, then those words will will take you to the place where that reality that God has for you becomes real. Start there. It's not an ending point. It's the starting point. Let's trust him for that. Father, we are so thankful that this morning you are melting our hearts with the truth of your heart for us. That in Christ you have loved us and given us life and, and that in every step of our journey, That's the truth that shapes us. You don't tell us we'll be without the struggles and and, and that those challenges that, that will be there, but in the midst of it, you tell us that we're yours. And Father, sometimes that's the message we need to hear the loudest, the strongest. And so I pray in the midst of all the other voices that that would just break through and indeed be our freedom that it would be our strength. Father, we just give you the praise for that. To think that Jesus is here to do your will and to finish your work. The work that you have started in us. And we're going to take you at your word and that's going to be our confidence. We're going to give you the praise. We sure do love you, Father. We thank you for loving us. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Thank you for hearing our heart cry today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.